Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. It is, as always, Wednesday morning. Last night the government were defeated, overwhelmingly, on another Brexit vote. It feels like we've been here before, or have we? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. And the LRB has a new podcast of its own. It's called The State Of. It's hosted by LRB editors Joanna Biggs and Tom Crew. And the first episode, which is available now, is with John Lanchester, a guest on this podcast, and Patricia Lockwood talking about the state of the internet. You can find it wherever you find your podcasts or at the LRB website, lrb.co.uk. We're joined today by Kenneth Armstrong, back from Brussels, not imminently, but you were in Brussels last time we gathered to talk about this a couple of weeks ago, Chris Bickerton, Helen Thompson. We've been doing this podcast for nearly three years, and we've had quite a few mornings like this, Wednesday mornings, where something's happened the night before, and we come in to try and sort of pull ourselves together and make some sense of it. This one feels different to me because normally it's kind of exciting, you know, however shocking the event the night before, whether it's Trump being elected or whatever, there's that feeling that something's opening up, even if something else is closing down. And this, it may feel differently to you, but it doesn't feel like that to me. This one feels like, partly because we've been here before, more like we're just kind of run off the road into a ditch and we're waiting for a friendly farmer to come along with a tractor and pull us out and there isn't one coming. It's really foggy as well. I can't see where this goes from here. We are also, and we've been here before too, doing this on the day that there will be a potentially consequential vote. Another one maybe tomorrow. You'll be hearing this overnight to Thursday morning. So we're going to anticipate a few things too. We'll try and do it roughly in sequence of where we are. The three-stage process. Last night's defeat on the deal. The vote that's upcoming on the possibility of no deal. The vote that follows that on an extension. And Kenneth, we don't want to get bogged down in the, in the legal stuff, not least because I think some of us are going to want to say this isn't about law anyway, it's about politics. But you wrote a blog yesterday before Jeffrey Cox made his pronouncements, but anticipating the way this was going, that not a lot had changed, but also that the deal that Theresa May had secured, the concessions that she'd secured, they did make some difference. But if the fear of those people on the Conservative side who ended up rejecting it was that Britain, quote unquote, remained trapped in something. The ways out were relatively limited and the path was relatively narrow. And as I understand it, that's because so much would turn on bad faith as the exit route, that as it were, the European Union would need to be seen to be acting in bad faith. Is that right, that the narrowness is the constraint that you don't get out unless you can show bad faith and you need to show bad faith to people who would recognise it? Absolutely. I mean, the, the good thing from, from what had come out was the attempt to provide a pathway towards the subsequent agreements and having negotiating tracks that would make sure that the, the backstop was never triggered. But the problem was always going to be what happened if you were in the backstop and how you would get out of it. If what the Attorney General was tasked to do was to find a way of unilaterally leaving the backstop that was an, always an impossible ask. That was always going to be undeliverable, I think. Therefore, the question was, is there anything else you can do 
to then find a way of at least suspending the operation of the backstop. And this is where the, the focus in the in the joint instrument is on whether one of the parties is in bad faith or breaching the best endeavours obligation to negotiate something to replace the backstop. But that in itself is difficult. The notion of bad faith in the negotiations, the idea that the negotiations have broken down because of bad faith. Well, we've been through 18 months of negotiations where both sides are have very different visions, very different objectives. They're not in bad faith, but they're just not didn't get anywhere on something. So meeting the threshold test of bad faith in itself was always going to be very difficult. And as I understand it, a few people pointed this out yesterday. This may not be right, but the suggestion was the nightmare scenario for the kind of ERG faction. They put a lot in the idea that the way out of this, the way to prevent a hard border but not getting trapped in the customs union are these technological solutions, yeah. that there's a way of kind of having a border that is policed by technology and therefore doesn't need to be policed by policemen or border posts or whatever. And the EU doesn't believe that. But That's, that's true. The thought being that that would be a very hard case to make, that it's bad faith for the other side to say, we simply do not accept that your proposed solution is workable, that the technology doesn't deliver what what you think it will deliver. So then the EU didn't rule that out, and therefore one of the tracks is to say, okay, we'll have a separate tract on what would be a distinct agreement to replace the customs and regulatory alignment parts of it. That would include looking at facilitative technologies, etc., etc. That was there, that was in place. Now, whether that would ever happen, whether it would transpire or not, would be an open question, but at least it was was there. And you could say, well, maybe they agreed to it because they didn't think it would ever happen. And maybe you're right. Maybe they didn't believe there was there was ever going to be a new technology that would deal with it. But at least it, it was in there and that was something that was potentially sellable back home. But the fundamental problem, the fundamental issue is that the Prime Minister, after the last vote, more or less said, OK, the House has told us certain things and that means there has to be changes to the backstop there has to be these things and that will include things like a unilateral termination that was never going to be deliverable Jeffrey Cox could never have delivered that and there's a major expectation management issue problem here I agree that there's a major expectation problem I think though that the aspect of it that hasn't had enough attention is the unilateral declaration where the British government is essentially saying the circumstances in which it thinks it could get out of the backstop. And the EU didn't challenge that. And so I think that there was ways of making the judgment, even the the hardcore legal judgment aspect of it, perhaps, so I can see that that's a bit more complicated, more creatively than Cox did. And there was also ways of making that argument, in some sense, the other way around in which he did. I mean, you could make the same points and draw out different aspects of it that would frame it in a more... So way. not put the killer line last, yeah. put it first, well, and then and then well, hedge you, it and complicate you can, it. You hedge it and complicate it. You certainly don't make that the denouement, if you like, which is the structure of the way that he presented um, things. And again, I mean, I think that is about expectation management, even in the form of the letter of how you manage the expectations. You build them up, you bring them down, whatever. And I think you're right. It comes at the end. Say, okay, we've taken you through all this process, all these different sorts of things. But my bottom line is going to be this, and that that bottom line being essentially my legal advice has not changed from the last time. And that that was what everybody was waiting for, the sort of Jeffrey Cox moment where he says, this is now all changed in a fundamental way, and that didn't happen. It's an interesting thought experiment, I think, to say 
you know, what would have happened had the judgment delivered by the Attorney General been a bit different? If it had been presented in a different way, what difference would that have made? And I certainly felt at the beginning of yesterday that there was a certain wind in the sails of Theresa May's deal. It looked like there was, for the first time, really a possibility that it could go through. And then immediately in the aftermath of his verdict, it all collapsed. The fact that it collapsed so quickly makes me think that maybe we were a little bit mistaken in thinking that it was actually going to go through in the first place. Because there is something fundamental sort of around this which exists whether you take the interpretation that his decision was really decisive or not, which is that on the EU side, there's certainly a perception that the backstop is not an ideal situation for them, and they wouldn't want to make it permanent. And so the idea that the fear on the British side is they're going to be trapped into it elicits from the EU this response, which is, what do you mean trapped? We aren't trying to trap you into anything. We're simply committing ourselves and backing the Irish government and trying to avoid under any circumstances the return of a hard border. And until suggestions come along that give us the impression that there's a viable alternative to the backstop, the backstop is just what we commit ourselves to. But we don't want to trap you. But on the British side, the backstop has almost overwhelmingly been interpreted as this cage which you can either escape from by having some means to do so or you will be trapped. Now if you add into that the fact that the ERG and other people have just simply been unable to provide a convincing alternative to the backstop, the technology sort of issue has kind of rumbled on, nobody really buys it, so it is all that there is on the table. If you put those things together I think you still have the situation that we have, regardless of whether Geoffrey Cox had been a little bit more political in his presentation. But But there is that also basic political expectations management game which is the likelihood is if this was a free anonymous vote it would have passed but MPs are named in the newspapers the next day according to which lobby they went into and particularly Labour MPs are not going to expend political capital and could actually destroy their careers backing a deal that won't pass. There's a tipping point somewhere in this a belief that this thing has a chance of passing at which point you could get a kind of cascade effect potentially And the Cox letter killed that. I mean, it absolutely did kill that. There was no belief two minutes after it was published that this could get through. And in the end, fewer Labour, I think that's right, isn't it? Fewer Labour people backed the deal than they did last time. So that challenge is still there. And then the other challenge, and we've talked about this so many times, is to persuade people that this is the last chance. And no one bought that yesterday. Everyone knew that this was not the last chance, that there was almost an automatic extension through to the European elections. And this could easily come round again. And until there is that belief that this is the last chance, you will not get the possibility of that cascade effect. So I think it's that combination of things. The Cox letter symbolised the moment where it wasn't going to happen. But you almost need a different letter from Cox and also a belief that possibly this won't come round again. And we're not there yet. I entirely agree on the extension. I think that in some sense Juncker killed it once he said implicitly, in fact pretty explicitly, not just implicitly, that there could be an extension until the day before the European Parliament election. You've just taken the precipice away and you can't get to the point of choice until there's a precipice. But at the same time, I think the the issue with the backstop in terms of Cox's letter is, is the backstop is about a fear about being trapped in it, as you say, Chris, but it's also a symbolic issue. And it's an issue that a lot has been invested in by those who have wanted a different kind of Brexit within the Conservative Party and to some extent within the DUP and within the Conservative Party, those who want to resume out. And so they're not just concerned about whether Britons get trapped in a customs union forevermore. 
But they needed the opportunity to climb down from the positions in which they had taken, or at least the bit of the ERG that is biddable in this respect. And that's what Cox took away from them. It didn't matter, in some sense, what the arguments were, is they needed to be able to say something had changed. And if he'd given them some reason to say something had changed, then they had a justification for not looking like losers. But if they, he says nothing's changed, and then they back the deal, then they look like they're just caving into Theresa May. And that's not possible politically for some of them within the OGs. So one of the things that Helen and I were talking about yesterday as we were sort of consoling each other through the day was part of what's different about contemporary politics is everyone has said so much, quote unquote, on the record because everyone is tweeting and no one's discreet anymore. No one seems to be biding their time, holding their tongue. We'll come on to something that Geoffrey Cox said in an interview in a minute. But more broadly, you know, from the DUP through to the ERG, we need all these ladders for them to climb down because they've all staked their colours to the mask on Twitter. Everyone's responding in real time. It feels different. Everyone has this whole set of things that they've said. You know, Nigel Dodds, whoever it is, we cannot back down on this. We're committed to that. It makes this nightmarish doing this, quote unquote, in the age of Twitter. But at the same time, if what we're saying is, is correct, there's this amazing contingency as well, which is to say that it takes just simply... A decision, some legal paragraphs by an attorney general at a particular point in time, phrased in a certain way, in terms of its style, its presentation, to tip the balance in a completely different way. So on the one hand, you have this kind of backlog of commitments, which people have publicly made, building up, building up, you can't change your position, you've really staked your sort of, you know, you've said you're going to do this, you can't then go back on it. And then on the other hand, we have this idea that actually at 11 o'clock yesterday, whenever it was... Those five words in a different order and they all go scrambling down the ladder. It can both be true. But those two things are correlated to each other, precisely because that so many people stake their positions out in public and on social media and invite support for those hardline positions is because politics hasn't actually changed, it's still about compromise, then as long as some pretext can be provided for the change then it's still possible to get past the commitments that they've that they've made now that may mean that the, the pretext get flimsier and flimsier but still something has to get in the way of the fact that you can't simply in a parliament of 650 people take a position three months before a vote and then think that's all there is to say about it. Kenneth when you read the Cox letter so there was some discussion about this that he wrote it too much like a lawyer and this is raw politics. So I, I can't judge these things. I mean, it was quite, the language was quite technical in places. It wasn't an easy read. But did it strike you as excessively, in some sense, legalistic? I mean, at the end of the day, he is the Attorney General. I mean, his job is to provide legal advice to government and to set out the legal position. His difficulty, of course, was that he was not abstracted from the process by which that, that came around. And maybe, yeah, I mean, could you be, can sense, you be the chief well, negotiator exactly, and the Attorney Not only General? was he not abstracted, he was in charge of it. Yeah, I mean, but that, again, that, that highlights the problem of using the Attorney General as the person, the means, and also of using law as the means of dealing with politics. I mean, that's, that's a really crucial point here is the the idea that somehow amidst all of this political irresolution law just comes in on the white horse and solves things for people and therefore makes creates the certainty that we don't have in the uncertain politics. And this was Cameron's problem. If we go back to prior to the referendum, we had this renegotiation, same things, late nights in Brussels, will there be a deal, won't there be a deal? Yes, there's a deal. What form is the deal in? 
oh, what's this instrument called and what's this communicate, what's this decision, this kind of morass of law that nobody really understands, but somehow we hope that it's going to solve things. And it was unsellable. As soon as the, the ink is dry, it's unsellable because it doesn't provide the resolution to fundamental political disputes. So to that extent, I would actually defend the Attorney General in the sense of saying he explained clearly and precisely what the legal consequences were of what had been negotiated. The problem was the expectations were far too high on what it was that was deliverable. And there was a complete lack of reality as to what the EU's red lines were going to be in facing up to what the UK was demanding in terms of the changes to the backstop. So two things to say against the Attorney General. One is that he must therefore be to blame for the expectation mismanagement if he was both the negotiator and the person in the end who was going to say this is undoable. And secondly, there was that interview he gave three months ago, which was much quoted yesterday, in which he said, I've been a barrister for 36 years or something, and I've only been a senior politician for seven months, and my reputation as a barrister matters much more to me than my reputation as a politician, to which I want to say, but you you are now a senior politician. That will not cut it. I mean, it may be that he feels that he can't do his job as a politician if he trashes his reputation as a barrister. Fine. I mean, you can make that case. But how dare he come and tell us? I mean, our lives depend on his decisions as a politician. That This is about his reputation as a barrister. I couldn't care less about his reputation as a barrister. I think it was supremely unwise to actually send him to Brussels to do this. That just seems completely compromised him from the get-go because as you say well which role is he playing is he playing the role of the political negotiator or is he playing the role of the person who gives impartial advice to government and says here's what has been negotiated and here's what its legal consequences were I mean he didn't do the negotiations that gave rise to his first letter so he was compromised I think from that I think in this respect though Theresa May is absolutely to blame for sending him but he is also to blame for going because you simply can't wear both hats and she must feel a terrible sense of betrayal in the sense of he was party to these negotiations and then turning around and saying afterwards clearly when she thought that wasn't what was going to happen that legally it's not qualitatively sufficiently different than it was last time but I I agree with David in the sense that the political question is inescapable here now one of the problems that the EU causes I think is is that it tries to make so many questions into legal questions that's the nature of what it's like as a legal and and constitutional order and like you said in relation to Cameron's negotiations it causes all kinds of problems and this situation in which we find ourselves is not alone in the sense of agreements are struck between executives over often very legally complicated issues and they're brought back to legislatures and legislatures are just supposed to basically sign them off and actually legislatures say no we're the representatives of the people we're democratically elected and we're going to have us have a say in it and politics and law keep crashing into each other all the time but it does seem to me problematic when you have one individual who is a lawyer who is saying his reputation in that profession is of more consequence than the consequences of his own actions as that individual for entire country's politics that (laughs) I just can't quite get past that as a problem now you can say that's a problem that's created by having an attorney general in our the way that our country's politics and constitutional system works, that's that's fair enough. But there is an element of, it seems to me, of fairly fundamental narcissism when you say that actually 
my professional integrity matters more than my political judgment when you are elected to deploy your political judgment. I mean, attorney generals have politicised the world. I mean, we only have to look at Trump and the investigations into Trump and the politicisation of attorney generals. I mean, this this isn't you. Can I, let's, we'll get beyond this. I just want to ask one more attorney general question. It's hard not to think, and this may be completely a false comparison, but the Iraq war, the Blair government, was in a similar predicament. A lot hung on the judgment of the Attorney General being willing to say this is now quote-unquote legal, and Goldsmith delivered the political judgment. Is there a comparison to be made there? I mean, these are very, very different kinds of cases. But in modern British history, they are the two that stand out, the consequential cases that we will be remembered. I mean, Goldsmith could have brought down the Blair government, essentially, I think. Isn't that a reasonable statement? And Cox may well have brought down the May government, was it that the cases were actually different or was it that one was willing to do the politics and the other wasn't? Or is that a completely unfair question to no, spring no, on it, you uh, yeah, it's, on I mean, a Wednesday it is, morning? It is the expectation issue of what is the background politics and therefore where does the law fit into it? I mean, is it the case that, well, we just get an illegal opinion but we recognise that actually it's for politicians to then act on that and then do something about it where it's fairly clear which pathways they can go down? I think the difficulty becomes where particularly in this situation where there is no clear majority for one pathway rather than another, this legal opinion becomes the moment of some type of certainty. And then the certainty that it creates is not the certainty that the government needed, if you like, at this moment. And that's why it became a problem. I think it's kind of the relationship with law and politics is obviously pretty complex. I don't think it's really the politicising of legal figures it's the legalisation of politics. I think that's what's been happening. That's what does make the Iraq war sort of decision comparable. You have this idea that legal advice is provided, but the final decision is taken as a political decision based on, you know, being legally informed. But finally, the sort of the call is a political call. And what we've had in both of those instances, but especially what we had yesterday, was you get the impression, in fact, that the final call is a legal question. And that's but I don't think that's the legalisation of politics. I think that's politicians giving up political responsibility and handing it over to lawyers to say, we don't really know what to do. We kind of hope you might have an idea. I think I meant the same thing. It's that from the perspective of the lawyer, you're simply giving a legal decision. But from the perspective of the politician, you're asking the lawyer to take essentially a political decision. And it's presented as a legal one, whereas really what's driving it is a, is a political one. So I think Jeffrey Cox, I mean, what he said was absolutely deeply narcissistic. And we can criticise him for that. But he's absolutely a symptom of something much more general. And if it hadn't been him, I think it would have been someone else. They might even have refused to go and negotiate. Well, fine, but still we'd have had this sense in which the final decision taken around a deal is understood, presented as, and expected to be one of law, when it's not. Just on this, I think there's three different things going on. The first is, is the role of the Attorney General in our politics. The second is the fact that the EU is a very legalised order, which gets us into these difficulties, not just in this country, but elsewhere. And the third is, is there is a distinction to be made, a clear distinction to be made between the legal jeopardy that the backstop might represent and the actual political likelihood that it might in any way come about. And the second turns on a judgment about the EU's interest, and that's what's been left out of it, because the political risk of the backstop is much less than the legal risk of the backstop. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So that then leads on to, let's leave one behind, move on to two, no deal, the vote that's coming up today. So some people from the EIG, Steve Baker in particular, but Jacob Rees-Mogg and others have been sort of trying to rationalise their position and explain where they've got to. And I think last night, Steve Baker said two things, one of which was, in their mind, and this is a question that we've asked, they are explicit that this is worse, this deal, they said, is worse than staying in the EU. So Jacob Rees-Mogg, for instance, said, how can it be that the backstop is harder to leave than the EU is to leave, which actually doesn't make sense because the backstop is preventing us from leaving the EU. But there we go. But Steve Baker again said, why would we vote for a deal that is worse than the thing that we're supposed to fear? And secondly, he said explicitly, we do not accept that no deal is going to be removed as an option even after the vote today. We still think it's a realistic option. And it's this weird thing that it remains the default and it remains the thing that Parliament will not sanction which is part of the reason we're in this mess. Let's leave it up to them to judge what's the worst of these options and which is the harder one to leave. But assuming Parliament today will not vote for no deal, is it taken off the table? I mean, Theresa May has indicated she will also not vote for no deal. And that was the great threat she had hanging over this. Is there still a path that gets us from here to no deal? Yes. Well, it depends. Uh, okay, let's hear, <laughs> let's hear yes first. That was slightly more forthright. <laughs> there is a path to no deal unless and until Article 50 is revoked because you can extend revoked. it. Revoked, right. Yeah, revoked by some means or another or put to a second referendum, whichever way you go about doing that. But if there's a, a short extension, then the possibility of no deal simply moves to the end of the period of the extension. But these two facts, that's the default this parliament will never sanction it. The government would fall. Surely, in raw politics, this parliament, as one of the ERG said at their meeting last night, the only people who are in favour of no deal are in this room, and there are about 100 of them. But you still then need to have, I mean, as Helen says, either you're not leaving the EU and then you are revoking the Article 50 notification, or you are leaving with a deal. The question is, what is the thing, what is the politics which then gets you to a deal, and what's the time frame for that? And if the EU were to give an indefinite extension, which some people think is, is a possibility, I'm not quite so sure, but if it was an indefinite extension, then in that point, no deal does disappear because we don't ever get to the point where the no deal would actually happen. An indefinite extension does sound like a complete nightmare. I, I think it would be Would hideous. we not all just lose the will to live at that point? I, I mean, I think that's where the politics starts to then get really very, very messy because it's not just practically waiting to get some sort of deal where we think there is something out there, but we just need to try a little bit harder to find that. I mean, I think it is quite clear that there is a degree of unsettlement in the country with the lack of certainty, with the lack of a decision, the lack of clarity, and that's where things, I think, start to get really sticky. I mean, I said it depends because it depends on step three. So you could have Parliament that would vote against the possibility of no deal, but that only really becomes meaningful if it can then also agree, first of all, to vote on an extension of Article 50. And that then just pushes the sort of the possibility of no deal a bit further away anyway. But it's also now, I mean, it's kind of out the hands of the UK as well. I mean, I feel that opinion is kind of hardening in a lot of European capitals about 
extension of Article 50 because there's a real reluctance, I think, to do it in a way that would open up any sort of new kind of negotiations. There's a real reluctance to cut the British more slack and just let them sort of keep going a bit. So the sense of a purposeless extension, I think, would have no favour. I mean, the EU can itself now trigger no deal simply by refusing to extend Article 50. And the Article 50 is what it is. If there's no extension of it, the UK will leave at the end of March without a deal. But there will be an extension to May or whatever. I mean, that... I... Well, I don't think even that can be completely... I mean, because I think that things have changed for the EU by the size of Theresa May's defeat last night. So Juncker made that, effectively, promise it could go until the, the 22nd of May without any difficulty. But once you've actually got to get the EU 27 to agree this, and each of them can then set some demands that they might want to attach to agreeing to it, and you can be reasonably sure, I think, that President Macron in particular might want to attach some demands onto doing it. It might then actually be very complicated for the British government to accept the extension on the okay. terms. Okay, that I don't offered. want to sound like a broken record here, and I'm not going to say that this is heading towards a general election, although I still believe that. But the government would fall. We're in this weird state, like the rules of political responsibility have been somehow suspended. The, I think it's two of the top four biggest defeats, isn't it? Or top five in British parliamentary history are these two. It's number one and number five or something. And on the government stumbles. But at some point, if no deal looms into view, with this parliament, the government falls. The government does not have the confidence of the parliament. The thing that I think has changed, again, in this world where people make commitments that they might come to regret, Boris Johnson in the debate yesterday said the only way to leave the European Union is with no deal. He absolutely staked his colours that mask yesterday in parliament. He said it. He said the way out is no deal. It's some Malthousey version of it, but it's no deal. If the government falls and he's a candidate to be prime minister, he could well wind up as prime minister. And then you have a prime minister who has advocated this. Then it does all change. But I think you've got to go through that sequence. I do not think we stumble out because the government falls. But there's another possibility, which isn't go against stumbling out, is is that if it becomes clear that the terms of an extension are going to be too tough, then you get in another third vote. Right. But a third vote on this deal, which then passes. In principle. Yeah, I want to come on to that. That was going to be my step four, which is <laughs> this isn't over yet, yeah. right? I mean, if the government does not fall, this government, this government can only survive by carrying on pushing for this deal. Theresa May cannot. I cannot see how she remains prime minister if she embraces Norway Plus or a second referendum or a general election because she can't fight one. Well, Norway Plus isn't an alternative. This is where we're back to I know. before. Norway Plus is no alternative to the withdrawal agreement. It's simply a further change to the political declaration. No, but that she signals, in a sense, that she's given control of some of this to the majority in Parliament. But I think the fact that, from the EU's perspective, they will want to know what the extension is for puts some you know, considerable added pressure on the British political system to generate some clarity about what it actually wants to achieve with an extension. Now, there are various things that it could achieve with an extension that could be simply to keep going at this deal. I've got the impression that if the only answer that comes back from Downing Street is, OK, well, the Parliament has voted for an extension of Article 50, and the purpose of this, as we communicate it to our interlocutors in Brussels, is to keep going with our deal, I don't think that's going to cut it as a reason for extending Article 50, because there's an unwillingness to open up the withdrawal agreement, and there's also plain evidence that it's unlikely that this deal really is ever going to get through, uh, unless it's fundamentally changed. I think the step three is going to have to be about something else. Now, what that something else is... If yesterday this deal was on the table and the alternative was no deal, this deal would have gone through yesterday. A large number of Labour MPs would have voted for it. 
there is still that belief, there must be that belief if Theresa May can bear to keep going, that the strategy has not yet been put to the test. And that is has been the strategy all the way along. Make them, as she said last night, you know, and Corbyn responded as normal by refusing to respond. You now face some really unenviable choices, you being, you bastards, on both sides of the house. So I mean, the, the irony here is that the way in which her deal could get through is if the EU commits itself to no deal. And, and I take it that's what they're signalling. They're, they're hardening for that reason. I mean, I've always thought that I couldn't imagine any circumstances in which the EU would not grant an extension, not least because they want to protect their own interests and because they didn't want to be the party blamed for a no-deal Brexit. But I am beginning to wonder whether they feel they need to do something bold that changes the domestic politics that really pushes this through and whether that does involve a fairly hard line on this that actually does then trigger the politics that leads to a general election because the other thing they need to know is okay we need to be able to negotiate with a functioning government that can command a majority and bring a deal back to us at some point that we can then negotiate on that is not working with this government and has no obvious capacity to do that so would they actually be bolder and then pushing and saying no extension. It would be ironic if the consequence of Brexit was it pushes the EU to adopt a policy of regime change. I mean, that's like, because that's in fact but, 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 but they can actually, though, bring something else about, which is, is by being tough about the extension, they actually increase the possibility that the withdrawal agreement goes through, even without having to do too much change to the political declaration. So they don't even have to bring but about... It, but they becomes, don't have to bring about regime change. a high-risk game. I mean, it is, after all, it is foreign governments intervening in the domestic politics, and you never know how but that's going to But I don't think that out. it necessarily is. All it is is getting to the point which is already entrenched in our law where an actual choice has to be made. And at the moment, you have a set of politicians particularly on the Labour Party side, but also on, to some extent, on some of the ERG at least, who are refusing to make a choice. I just think in a world where you know, unintended consequences just spiral out of anyone's control, the choice being forced on us from outside makes me uneasy. Because they don't understand, I mean, Macron does not understand British politics. I mean, I think they are also completely baffled by it, right? I mean, we haven't yet talked about the DUP and all these other players in this. The idea that, that the only way we can get through this is if they kind of push us to the edge of the cliff. God help us. The, the perspective, I think, in Brussels is not that, but it makes it more dangerous, I think, is that it's simply about pursuing the process. Barney has said, and his team have said from the very beginning, this is a process and we follow the rules that have been set for us by the European Council and its guidelines. So at this stage, what are those rules? Um, there will be a summit where European leaders can make some sort of assessment on whether they want to accept a possible request made by the British government to extend Article 50. In the absence of that, the process is what it is, which is to begin to prepare for no deal and to assume that the UK will leave without a deal. It's not that there's a kind of a plan to topple the government, to push for an election, to get a new team in. Like, I don't think it's particularly, I mean, the EU doesn't really operate in that you know, hyper-political way. It operates just in a very legalistic way. And that but it will have knock-on effects on the UK, which are incredibly strong. But it won't be the intended effect. It will just be the unintended effect of following the process as laid but out. But I think at a certain point, from the, even from the EU's point of view, that the process approach to decision-making just runs out of ground. I mean, because these national governments, 
if they're going to accept a new deal, have also sorry, no deal, have got to accept the electoral consequences, the political consequences for them. And I think that is particularly problematic in in the German case. The German economic news is getting, you know, like worse and worse, you know, falling industrial production. If you're Angela Merkel and you have got to explain to the German electorate no deal and the hit that the German economy is going to take and that you look that you've brought it about, i.e. the EU have brought that about, then I think that is an unnecessary political risk for someone like Angela Merkel um, to take. But will it not be very easy to spin this as just an example of the complete self-destruction of the British political system? This is, you know, meltdown in London. What what can the EU do? We've done our best. We've set out these guidelines. They didn't sort it out in time. There is the danger in that, which is, you know, it's absolutely clear that this turns on Ireland, Northern Ireland, the DUP, the EU's completely understandable position, which is in these negotiations, it is going to take the Irish side. But in political terms, this happens not just because of the dysfunctionality of British politics, but because the EU, the Germans, were committed to defending the Irish. The Germans weren't thrilled about defending the Greeks. You know, there's a point at which the raw politics of this does then become this sort of, does the EU go to the wall for the sake of one member state quote-unquote, on the edge. I mean, I think there is a political risk, isn't that right? That's what I'm saying. I I just don't think that it can be a matter of indifference in any country's domestic politics within the EU if you get to no deal. And you've got to have some political reason for that. And given that there is a card to play still, which is to try to focus the British Parliament's minds and say, choose which of the two things that you want, either that you are going to have Brexit on these terms or you're going to stop Brexit, then why not, at least in the first instance, try that as an approach? So, Kenneth, the thing that we've talked about before, which, again, as we go through this sequence, we kind of run two and three together because they're so connected, mm. no deal and extension. But there's this thought that's always hovered in the background that somehow, quote-unquote, Parliament would take control of the process. And even today, the papers are starting to say Theresa May has lost control of the process. Well, in political terms, she's clearly struggling. Does that even make sense? I mean, I still think... When Parliament takes, when the legislature takes control of the process, the executive falls. It doesn't just carry on sitting there watching decisions being made. You would need a new government. That just, it, isn't that a kind of fantasy? I think it's complete fantasy, and it's it's not. Our politics just doesn't work like that internally, let alone how it works externally. I mean, that's we were talking about a negotiation between the United Kingdom and an international organisation and its member states. That is done by governments. Now, for good or ill, I think as we, we indicated earlier, that can, I think as Helen point, this, kind of this executive negotiation does then have to hit the parliamentary wall at some point. Now, the way in which you do that better is to ensure that your parliament's on side through the negotiations and therefore that there is no surprises at the end. And that's where the UK manifestly failed. But there needs to be a functioning government. And I cannot see how Parliament can take control. Government has to govern. There has to be a government. government, And our constitutional system is set up on the basis that if a government cannot command a majority in the House on a matter that is of supreme significance, and you can't imagine anything more significant than this, then the government has to fall. Is there any way of reverse engineering it? So as Helen says, it's not, you know, there's this misunderstanding that Norway Plus or whatever is what's being debated about now. But you find in the parliament where there is a consensus, and you construct a government out of that. I mean, it's, it seems politically pretty remote possibility, given the nature of partisanship and so on, it would have to be some kind of government of national unity. I mean, this is old fashioned or 18th century politics, the kind of thing that could 
secure a majority in this parliament and then you build a government out of that knowledge. Is there any way that works in the 21st century? We saw Corbyn last night saying, you know, if only we were, if only you were backing my vision of the future, the customs union. Hang on, that was also defeated. That In the last vote, that was also defeated. So you might say, well, is this the point where minds do change on, on that and on the future? But I think... No, because that's never put to this absolutely fundamental either no. or. That's always just wishfulness. I know, right? but at the same time, is I'm not entirely clear at all that even on a secret ballot there would be a, a, a majority for a permanent customs union, which is what Corbyn um, wants. But let's just say for the sake of argument that there is. Then he's still got to, some of the Labour Party have got to be willing to pass that withdrawal agreement through the House of Commons. And so long as the Labour leadership is committed to seeing this issue primarily in tactical terms, in terms of which party has power in Britain and how do we get as quickly as possible to having a Labour government, it's very difficult to see how that comes about. So I've got one last question, which is a much bigger question. So this was provoked by, as the votes were happening last night, my son is in his first year at university, was kind of, and he's doing history, was saying... Like, what will, you know, probably reasonable question, what will this look like in 20, 30 years' time? And so he's doing the, the, the hoary old question of the origins of the English Civil War, the conclusion being, and I did that at school too, like, no one knows, right? It's just, it's still a deep mystery. These events that you kind of feel, well, with the benefit of hindsight, it'll be possible to see what was really going on. So in the Civil War case, was this, was this really about religion? Was it court versus country? Was it the personality of the king? Was it about the rising middle class? And those arguments go round and round, and they just, as it were, they get harder to resolve with the passage of time. And this feels like one of those events. So we're living through it, and we're not really, I think, any of us sure exactly what's driving it. Is this possibly going to be another one of these historical moments where we'll never know what was driving it? Is there a real mystery at the heart of this? I think we'll, it's hard to say, but I think we'll know at least a way of framing it to make sense of it. Well, that's my question, will yeah, we? Yes, so I think we will. I think, okay, great, what is it? Well, so I, mean, this, I would guess that um, the way we've sort of overwhelmingly understood Brexit was some sort of passionate expression by a you know, sizable proportion of the population for a return to British politics understood as national sovereignty-based politics extracting itself from a very integrated legal and political order. And that was the way it was read. I think what the whole process is revealing to us is actually our very understanding of British politics and how it operates is way off that. There's no real sort of expression of British sovereignty against the European Union and breaking off of the European order. The British political system is simply entirely different. And the question of where authority resides within it, what the relations are between the different branches of government, how the party system inserts itself into these kinds of questions. What's being revealed to us, I think, is the deep degrees of change that have occurred over the last 40 years or so. So in that case, because I've, I've wondered this a lot, is the underlying story that this was missold, not because of posters on the side of buses or kind of false claims, but in a sense the British people were being asked to take a decision that the British political system lacked the capacity to deliver. At some deep level, there was a mismatch here that was kind of baked in from the beginning. I think so. And I think that's what we're starting to... And that's what we'll see in retrospect, I think. I think that it really depends on how two things turn out over the next 20 to 30 years. It depends on what happens to the European Union. I thought you were going to say over the next two to three days. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, and it depends what happens to the United Kingdom as a multinational state. So this is a bit like the English Civil War. Yes, it is in that respect. I think there were certain... The Scottish uh, question, the Irish question, pa- the English question. Is, is that 
If we are in 30 years time in a position where the United Kingdom as we know it does not exist as a multinational state, I think Brexit is going to be seen as part of that story. And it may well be. And you can go back and think, I think, about the role in which from the Scottish referendum onwards, if you like, the national question of the multinational state has played out in that referendum in the 2015 general election in the the referendum and now the role that the Northern Irish question is playing in the difficulties of of getting this legislation through the House of Commons. I think if the European Union is a very different kind of entity in 20 or 30 years time, either because it's structured into legal tiers or in some sense it's broken up, then Brexit is going to be seen as the beginning of the ways in which the European Union changed and Britain will be seen as the first place where the crisis manifested itself in a sense of in or out, not obviously the first place in the Eurozone sense because obviously Greece is central to that crisis. And some of the same issues about how do you reconcile a legal and constitutional order, a heavily legal and heavily constitutional order with democratic politics are going to play themselves out through the European Union in the years to come. And Brexit, again, I think would be seen as sort of like the first instance where it was dramatically played out, but it probably is, what I would say, it's not going to be the last. Well, I think rather glibly said a number of times, this is what happens when an over-constitutionalised EU meets an under-constitutionalised UK, in the sense that we actually, when when we look at it, we find great difficulties in us managing the the process as it happens. But I'm not sure there's like I'm not sure there's a big Scooby Doo moment where you know we all jump out the mystery machine and reveal the mill owner was the uh, was the culprit. We're in that Scooby Doo moment where someone's holding a trembling, yeah. a large trembling dog, or is it the dog holds the person? I can't remember which way around it is. Anyway. We're all shaking. I think I've got a less tidy view of politics. I think there are a certain set of issues which are about the trajectory of the European Union, where it's going, economic and monetary union, its its trajectory, how the UK itself has developed domestically, and then the bridge between the two. And the fact that the the UK since seventy five referendum hasn't really managed to bring European politics into a domestic realm in any meaningful way, in any useful way has been part of, part of the problem so that people felt entirely alienated from the structures itself, didn't feel they had been given consent to the pathway of integration since the UK membership, plus a whole load of domestic other factors. I think it's just quite messy. And presumably they will always have that interest for historians to go back to where we started, which is there are these deep structural and other forces at work. And it's also the case that had Geoffrey Cox got out of bed on the other side you know, on a particular day, we could go down quite a radically different path. I mean, there are still even not 20, 30 years, but two to three weeks, really big contingencies. A decision made by the DUP, Nigel Dodds, or a decision made by or within the Labour Party, you know, something that Tom Watson does. There are big forks in the road ahead still, even if this is sort of structurally... Yeah, I think that's some Shaped. of the, they are. I agree, but some of these contingencies are, if you like, got some heavy probabilities on side of them. I mean, given the way that we have our politics, would you bet that the Attorney General would take a very legal view rather than a political view? You would bet most of the time, leaving the Iraq War exception out, that the Attorney General is going to take a legal view. Might it be hard to persuade the DUP to climb down the ladder? It might it, be hard. Yeah. Would you expect that in an election in which you just had the Scottish referendum that? The Conservative Party would have been able to use attacks on the SNP as effectively as it would. Yes, that you would. Would you expect 
after what happened to the Labour Party during the 2010-2015 Parliament, that it would produce a more left-wing leader with the possibility, if it was an older person, that that was going to push the leadership in a Eurosceptic direction and cause a conflict with the membership. Yes, she probably would. So although some things look really quite contingent, like in the last example, like Corbyn's leadership, they have got explanations that are not so contingent. I think we are also sort of repeatedly sort of discovering things that just don't seem to fit with how we understand British politics. Um, I agree with Helen that the evolution of the EU will be decisive in how we read Brexit. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, what we've got an executive that's being defeated on votes of this magnitude that somehow seems to continue. I think there's a sense in which the old is dying, but we don't quite have a sense of what the new arrangements might be. But the reason why that is happening, that isn't, that's explicable. The reason why we're in this position is is because of the Fixed Term Parliament Act. That is what has made it difficult for executives because they can't use confidence votes any longer in order to do the kinds of very difficult things. I mean, look at the way in which John Major got Maastricht Treaty through the House of Commons against the background of siege parliamentary warfare against him. It was yeah, using but, a confidence But we vote. do have that act, which is a sort which of... Which is constant- itself a huge contingency. I mean, that's an accident, that act. It's, that's not... There were no structural forces that were going to produce a fixed-term parliament act. That was a result of... Well, an electoral outcome that was even then though is is like we haven't had elections. If you take the two thousand and five election aside, which is very odd in producing a substantial majority for a party with thirty five percent of the vote, British elections have been close in popular vote terms going back to two thousand and five, and in seat terms going back to two thousand and ten. So we're going to have to have a period of minority and coalition governments. Would you expect in those conditions? for a fixed-term parliament act to come in as some kind of binding force on a coalition government, probably, yes, you would. We haven't quite reached the point that you always, you know you're right on the edge of British politics. We haven't yet discussed what will the Queen do. but um, And then when that happens, then we know we are back in the 17th century. So maybe that's for next week. Kenneth's excellent blog, Brexit Time, goes into a lot more detail about some of the legal implications of this. If you look at our show notes, you'll find all the details there. We also will tweet the link... We are very aware this is a fast-moving story. We can't keep up with it in real time, but there will be an extra episode this week. Do look out for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. This could be quite a clipped podcast. Pretty assertive this morning. (laughs) I'm in a good mood. Yeah. I get new glasses. I'm in a good mood. Although I can't can't really see out of them. There's someone else's. (laughs) You collected some. Just bought them off the screen. (laughs) Sell what they'll do. You're going to. You probably can't see, but you're probably going to have to go. Oh yeah. See, there's a good. The round thing. Aim for the target, roughly. Yeah. Exactly.